From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Khalil Bendib is away. The Balfour Declaration was issued on November 2, 1917, as a letter from Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, Sir Arthur James Balfour, to Baron Walter Rothschild, a leader in the Zionist movement, which was subsequently incorporated into the Severus Peace Treaty with Turkey and the Mandate for Palestine. The letter promised a homeland for Jewish people and paved the way for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, which continues to this day. Here is a clip from Al Jazeera's Al Nakba series chronicling the history of the Balfour Declaration. Britain had no moral or political or legal right to promise the land that belonged to the Arabs to another people. So the Balfour Declaration was both immoral and illegal. A month after Balfour's pledge, a meeting took place in London to celebrate the Declaration. Speakers included Lord Rothschild, Herbert Samuel, Mark Sykes, and Chaim Weissman. Just several days later, on December the 11th, 1917, the British Army, commanded by General Edmund Allenby, captured Jerusalem. Entering the Holy City alongside Allenby was a Jewish military unit, established under British auspices. One member of this unit was David Ben-Gurion, who would later be Israel's first Prime Minister. The unit also included Ze'ev Jabotinsky, a future Zionist leader, as well as Nehemiah Rabin, soon to be father of young boy Yitzhak Rabin. Within a month, General Allenby welcomed Chaim Weissman in Jerusalem. There were approximately 50,000 Jews in Palestine at this time, 10% of the population among half a million Arabs. As Palestinians keep demanding an apology from Great Britain, far from acceding to those demands, British Prime Minister Theresa May has made the commemoration of the centenary of the dispossession of tens of millions of Palestinians and the ongoing ethnic cleansing of Palestine, a moment of national pride for Great Britain. We enter a week of commemorations around the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. Yeah. Uh, would my right hon. friend, the Prime Minister, rededicate us to the pursuit of peace and justice for both the Israelis and the Palestinians? but celebrate with pride our small national contribution to the creation of a democracy in the Middle East, a sanctuary for those who've suffered from anti-Semitism and fear its rise again, and in the State of Israel, a true friend of the United Kingdom. I first of all say to my honourable friend that we are proud of the role that we played in the creation of the State of Israel and we will certainly mark the centenary with pride. And uh, I'm also uh, pleased at the good trade relations and other relationships that we have with Israel and that we have, are building on and enhancing. This hour, we hear from Columbia University historian Professor Rashid Khalidi speaking about the Balfour Declaration and the role of the world's superpowers in supporting and cementing Israel's settler colonialist project. 
Professor Khalidi gave the keynote speech titled The Hundred Year War at the Center for Palestine Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at University of London in 2016. My focus this evening will, of course, be on Palestine. My title is The Hundred Years' War in Palestine. But you will notice that some of what I have to say will deal with Palestine in the mind of America and, to a lesser extent, Palestine in the imagination of Europe. I'll be covering large uh, stretches of history, so afterwards when we have time for questions, if there are things that I've unfortunately had to skip, you will have a chance to ask about that. Let me begin by saying that most of what most Americans think they know about Palestine is wrong. That shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, many of the images that Americans have of Palestine are derived from the Bible. This worthy document was set down millennia ago, and large parts of it have only a tenuous relation, if any relation at all, to historically provable fact. Even worse, some of their images of Palestine come from fictional works, like Leon Uris's multi-million selling novel, Exodus, or the Academy Award-winning Paul Newman film of the same name. If you ask an audience of Americans over the age of 40 or 50, uh, how many of you have read the book or seen the movie, a majority will raise their hands. In one of the most influential books as far as Palestine is concerned in terms of the American imagination. If they don't come from those sources, they come from other defamatory sources like Joan Peters' best-selling book, From Time Immemorial or from highly biased sources like the American mainstream media. In addition, the focus or the referent, the real thing that these things are about in most cases, is actually not Palestine. It's Israel or Jewish history rather than Palestine or Palestinian history. A typical example of such work that's had an impact in the present day would be Ari Shavit's book, My Promised Land. This is a best-selling book. It had a huge, uh, resounding success in the United States. It's written from a very personal angle. It's very well written. Uh, but it's a highly apologetic book written from an Israeli perspective, even though it purports to correct the historical record by chronicling some Israeli maltreatment of the Palestinians. So I would say, in fact, that it's an understatement to say that most existing portrayals of Palestine in the American general culture, whether literary, whether scholarly, or visual, do not reflect a Palestinian perspective. That's an understatement. One could be even more categorical. The Palestinians have, in fact, mainly been defined in the American public mind and in the West generally, though this is less true in this country and in Europe, by those who wish them ill if they recognize their existence at all. Indeed, it's an article of faith for many opponents of the Palestinians, that they do not even exist. This has been repeated again and again by leading American politicians, candidates for president and others, senators, congressmen. And this canard is the central theme of Joan Peters' book, which when it was published got plaudits from the good and the great, luminaries such as Elie Wiesel, uh, Saul Bellow, Barbara Tuckman, Bernard Lewis, Alan Dershowitz, the good and the great in the American public pantheon. Uh, although it was utterly discredited by every reputable scholar who ever reviewed it, without exception, everywhere, this book is still in print. If you 
Google it on Amazon, you'll see that it's selling better than most of my books or Gilbert's books or books by many of my colleagues and friends in this audience, no insult to any of us. And this 30 years after it was first published. Uh, many more books like Peter's From Time Immemorial have appeared since then. And these are, this is what you might call denialist literature. It argues that there is no such subject as the Palestinians. The center that we established at Columbia, the center that has been established here at SOAS, shouldn't exist. It's a non-topic, no such thing. In a sense, what I'm arguing is that the Palestinians have been elided from the historical record, or at least there has been an attempt to elide them from the historical record. In the words of Edward Said, they've been denied the permission to narrate. They cannot tell their own story, in other words. Even when they're allowed to appear on stage, in public forums, or in the media, they have to have a minder. That means, in the American context, their appearance is carefully balanced with the opposing point of view. In other words, you can't say something about the Palestinians without having someone to say, well, this, of course, is not true from another perspective. Such balance, I would note, is never required in the United States when an Israeli, or rarely required in the United States when an Israeli perspective is put forward. Now, what I want to do this evening is to turn away from all of these distorted ways in which the history of Palestine is usually depicted, whether that's from an Israeli point of view, whether that's from a falsely balanced perspective, or whether it's between a supposed conflict between two equal parties. I'm going to push all of those approaches, which are the approaches that are generally followed by most interpretations, uh, aside. In their stead, in place of those kinds of approaches, I would like to put forward an entirely different perspective in order to illuminate the history of the past century in Palestine as the Palestinians have experienced it, and I would argue as most people in the formerly colonized world also see it, and that's most people in the world. I hope thereby to provide a richer understanding of the real conflict over that land today. Now, from this perspective, the one that I want to use this evening, the period since the Balfour Declaration of November 29th, 1917, has witnessed what amounts to 100 years of war against the Palestinians. Like many other long-lasting wars, this one has had long periods of apparent calm interspersed with paroxysms of violence. However, this war had a unique nature. It was formally sanctioned and authorized by the greatest powers of the day at different times over the past century. Indeed, this war could not have taken place without them, but it was mainly waged by others. I'm going to repeat that sentence. This war was formally sanctioned and authorized by the greatest powers of the day at different times over the past century. Indeed, this war could not have taken place without them, but it was mainly waged by others. An important feature of this long war, one which has been much distorted, has been the Palestinians' continuing resistance against heavy odds to what amounts to one of the last ongoing attempts at colonial subjugation in the modern world. Taking this approach is not in any way to chronicle the history of the Palestinians as one of their victimization. Indeed, it gives them full agency as people resisting a long campaign to remove them from their land and from history. Nor is it to whitewash the many grievous mistakes of Palestinian leaders. As I wrote in The Iron Cage, much of the history of the Palestinian people must be understood in terms of the very bad choices 
made by their leaders at different times, albeit often in the most difficult of circumstances. What the people of Palestine experienced as a continuous war against them since 1917 is still underway today. It thereby constitutes a global anomaly. All the other recent wars to uproot colonial settler regimes in the second half of the 20th century, whether this was in Algeria or southern Africa or elsewhere, finally ended with the defeat of these regimes. This has not happened in Palestine. Instead, in Palestine, Israel has thus far been highly successful in forcibly establishing itself both as a colonial reality and as a powerful nation state in a post-colonial age. It has done this while always assuming a false posture of self-defense, which I'm sure will be familiar to most of you. The great historian and theoretician of colonialism, Patrick Wolfe, who sadly just passed away, uh, wrote the following. I'm quoting Patrick Wolfe. Settler colonies were, in brackets, are, premised on the elimination of the native societies. The split tensing were, are, the split tensing reflects a determinate feature of settler colonization. The colonizers come to stay. Invasion is a structure, not an event. He's thinking, of course, of Australia. You could say the same thing about New Zealand. You could say the same thing about Canada or the United States. But think of those words in regard to Palestine. In Palestine, both that structure and the war that resulted from it are still ongoing today after 100 years. It is a war that seems endless to the Palestinians themselves. Now, there have been repeated authoritative international pronouncements that amounted to declarations of war by the great powers that were sponsors of this long colonial campaign against the Palestinians. The first of these was issued in November of 1917, November 2nd to be exact, on behalf of the British cabinet by Foreign Secretary Arthur James Balfour, the Balfour Declaration. British troops were then in the process of conquering Palestine. They occupied Jerusalem a couple of weeks afterwards on December 9th of 1917. The Balfour Declaration and the League of Nations mandate that was later granted to Britain on the basis of this declaration and which repeated the terms of the declaration in the preamble to the mandate verbatim, this declaration and this mandate arrogated national rights in Palestine exclusively to Jews who were at that time, of course, a tiny minority of the population. It thereby denied the national existence and political rights of the vast Arab majority of Palestine's people. So the Balfour Declaration and the mandate said that there is one people in Palestine. There's one group with national rights. Neither the declaration nor the mandate ever named this population, which had lived in its own country for generations. So the word Arab or Palestinian doesn't occur in the Balfour Declaration. It doesn't occur in the mandate for Palestine. The Balfour Declaration has been considered historically in terms of various paradigms, mainly in terms of Zionist or British considerations. And there has been good work on both of these sides of it. However, it was in fact a quintessentially colonial proclamation by the greatest power of its day of that power's intent to replace an indigenous people with another people whom it proposed to bring into existence on that 
indigenous people's territory. For two decades, without fail, actually for 22 years, without fail, Britain carried out to the letter the terms of the Balfour Declaration and of the League of Nations mandate that defined and regulated British rule over Palestine while embodying and amplifying the terms of the Balfour Declaration. In keeping with the mandate, Britain supported Zionist immigration and land purchase and granted self-governing institutions and international diplomatic status to the Jewish minority. A para-state was created under the mandate by the terms of the mandate, while self-government and diplomatic status were refused to the Arab majority. Provoked by Britain's denial of their rights and indeed of their very existence as a people, the Palestinians belatedly rebelled in 1936 to 1939. They briefly liberated some towns and parts of the countryside. But the British Empire responded ruthlessly, employing over 100,000 troops and extensive air power to crush this uprising. In the process, the British killed, wounded, deported, or imprisoned 10% of the adult male population of Palestine. They also confiscated large quantities of weapons. They exiled or jailed uh, most leaders and executed a very large number of them. This was the delayed military implementation of Britain's original 1917 declaration of war on the Palestinian people. I have stressed in what I've said so far the role of Britain. And it's important that you keep your mind on that because I'll, I'm going to follow up with a similar stress on other powers. Now, as any historian can tell you, the same dates, the same events, the same individuals can have a completely different valence for different people. There are battles that mean one thing to one group and something else to another group. Thus, for Israelis, Arthur James Balfour is a hero. There are streets named for him in Israeli cities. There's a town named for him, in fact. And the promulgation of the Balfour Declaration in 1917 is an occasion for celebration in Israel. Balfour is obviously not a hero to the Palestinians. Why this was so can be understood from a close textual analysis of a number of key documents from this era, starting from the Balfour Declaration, which defined British policy really for the entirety of the mandate period. This declaration, as I've noted, says that there's only one people with national rights in Palestine, the Jewish people. The Palestinians are, as I've said, described not by name or even as Arabs, but only as, quote, existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. So 94% of the population never named, are not given national rights, and are described only as the existing non-Jewish population. This vast majority of Palestine's population is only guaranteed civil and religious rights. They are not guaranteed political rights, and they are not guaranteed national rights. So there's one community with national rights and the right to a Paris state and other legal protections. Another community is simply given civil and religious rights. So that's the first document, which I've already talked about. Second, which I haven't talked about, is Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations. Uh, this was issued in June 1919, and it described the Arab peoples of the regions of the former Ottoman Empire as independent nations. You would think, well, that means Palestine. It didn't mean Palestine. This article of the covenant, Article 22, which supposedly governed the entire mandate system, was consistently interpreted, both by Britain and by the League of Nations, to exclude Palestine. This did not apply to Palestine in the view of the British. In other words, Article 22, as far as Balfour and his colleagues were concerned, 
guaranteed self-determination to all Arab peoples who had formerly been part of the Ottoman Empire, but not to the Palestinians. Because in Palestine, self-determination was promised to the Jewish people. So that's the second document. There's a third, which, if you examine it carefully, uh, yields some interesting things. This is a confidential memo that Balfour wrote to his colleagues in the cabinet in August 1919. And it wasn't published for decades. It was first published, in fact, in the 1950s. And in it, Balfour was more candid than he ever was in public. He said, and I'm quoting from this memo, Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long traditions, in present needs, in future hopes of far greater import than the desires. You almost want to hear the mere desires, but he didn't say mere. Than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now, just for the moment, inhabit that land, that ancient land. Balfour went on to say, I quote again, in Palestine, and you, this follows from what he just said, in Palestine, we do not propose even to go through the form of consulting the wishes of the present inhabitants of the country. So that's the third document. The last one is the 1922 League of Nations mandate for Palestine. This reiterated the Balfour Declaration verbatim, as I've said, amplified the terms of the declaration, and it produced an operational plan for effectively eliminating an existing people and replacing it with another. If you read the mandate, it has 11 or 12 articles solely devoted to the establishment of a Jewish national home. The rest have to do with things like taxation. Nothing, nothing deals directly with the political or national aspirations of the majority there. In fact, those aspirations are to be denied. That's what this document means. It's clear from all of these documents that Palestinians and their rights simply had no importance for British decision makers, or for that matter, for decision makers in the League of Nations. Taken together and read closely, these statements of policy, whether by Britain or the League of Nations, in effect, constituted an international justification for politicide, meaning the destruction of the emerging Palestinian polity, to use a term that was coined by the late Israeli sociologist Baruch Kimmerling. This politicide was implemented both by omission, Palestinians are never mentioned in any of the documents that governed their collectivity right up to 1948, uh, and by commission. Three of these documents explicitly declare that Palestine is to be transformed into a Jewish national home. In spite of the vague and ambiguous nature of this term, Jewish national home, British leaders understood clearly that it meant creating an ultimate Jewish majority in Palestine and thereby turning it into a Jewish state. This is not in the terms of the mandate. It's not in the Balfour Declaration. It's not even in Balfour's confidential memos. But this is precisely what Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, and Arthur Balfour later privately told Chaim Weizmann, who of course was the leader of the Zionist movement, first president of Israel, at a dinner meeting in Balfour's house in 1929, which is recorded in the Weizmann papers. They told him, this is what we mean. We mean a Jewish majority. We mean a Jewish state. That's what we mean, Jewish national home. That's what we understand this term to mean. Three of these documents, in other words, constitute a slightly watered down and more 
palatable version of the core Zionist objective of transforming Palestine into a Jewish state from an Arab country. Now, I've mentioned that the military campaign which enforced these declarations of policy was prosecuted by the might of the British Armed Forces, especially during the period 1936-39, in response to the resistance of the Palestinians to British rule and to the colonial project that Britain supported. One of the clearest expressions that I've ever found of what was at stake was issued by Vladimir Jabotinsky in the 20s. Jabotinsky, as you may know, was the founder of the militant revisionist wing of the Zionist movement, out of which grew the ideological current that since 1977 has dominated Israeli politics with few interruptions. The current prime minister's father was Jabotinsky's private secretary. Jabotinsky was explicit in stressing the necessity of what he called, quote, an iron wall of British bayonets for the success of Zionism. He frankly recognized that, quote, in the history of colonization, this is Jabotinsky speaking, in the history of colonization in other countries, every native population, civilized or not, regards its lands as its national home. This is equally true of the Arabs, end of quote. Note Jabotinsky's frank use of the terms colonization to describe Zionist activity and the native population to describe the Palestinians. We don't get the same frankness after Jabotinsky in pronouncements by leaders of the Zionist movement. Jabotinsky concluded that overcoming the natural resistance of this population to their subjugation and displacement required, quote, an iron wall, which is to say, a strong power in Palestine that is not amenable to any Arab pressure. Of course, he was right. He meant at that stage the British. At later stages, that strong power was the United States, and at another stage, the United States and the Soviet Union. For two decades, it was Britain that provided this iron wall, without which Jabotinsky freely admitted that Zionist colonization could not have been successfully pursued. Now, that they have been the targets of a long war is central to Palestinians' own understanding of the conflict. Older people inside Palestine, in the refugee camps, and in the larger diaspora, Palestinian diaspora, talk of the British or the Israelis or the Americans in almost the same breath, as if they're different faces of the same foe. In other words, they see things more clearly than a lot of scholars, just ordinary folks in the camps or elsewhere. Palestinians thus see their history since 1917 as involving their people being targets of this unending war to which they have offered continued resistance. For them, this history blends seamlessly into the present and unfortunately, probably into the future. In their historical experience, the unceasing colonization of their country, which they see taking place before them every day in the West Bank or in Jerusalem and inside Israel, this unceasing colonization and the constant resort to violence that is required for its maintenance is, to reprise the words of Patrick Wolfe, a structure, not an event. Now, let me move in time, leaping forward. The superpowers of the post-World War II era, the United States and the Soviet Union, were responsible for two further authoritative international pronouncements endorsing the Zionist project and its transformation into the state of Israel that I am arguing amounted to declarations of war on the Palestinians. These were once again issued via the ostensibly neutral medium 
of an international organization similar to the League of Nations. This time, it was the United Nations. This new world body gave the patina of legal sanction to further violations of the inalienable national rights of the indigenous Arab population of Palestine. By this point, as you know, uh, most of you, Britain had been weakened by the massive effort it had made in World War II and by the loss of India, while in Palestine it was being battered by the attacks of Zionist terrorists, notably the Irgun and the Stern Gang, which later on gave leadership to Israel in the form of Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Shamir, prime ministers of Israel. In consequence of this, Great Britain was forced to abandon Palestine, throwing it into the lap of the United Nations, where the two new superpowers had predominant influence. The first of these two new declarations of war on the Palestinians came on November 29, 1947, via UN General Assembly Resolution 181 for the partition of Palestine. This resolution was engineered entirely by the United States and the Soviet Union, which ensured a majority vote by their compliant allies and satellites. Resolution 181 handed over most of a majority Arab country to its Jewish minority without the consent of that majority. It thereby violated the principle of self-determination that had been enshrined in the UN Charter only two years earlier. This led in turn to the war of 1947-49, which devastated Palestinian society and caused the expulsion of more than half of that country's Arab population from their homes. As we all know, they were never allowed to return. Partition allocated nearly 55% of the territory of mandatory Palestine to a Jewish state, which represented a realization of the Zionist dream of sovereignty and statehood in Palestine. The Arabs, over two-thirds of the population, were supposed to have a so-called Arab state divided into three segments, which together comprised less than 45% of the entire country which the Palestinians naturally saw as their own. For these contrasting reasons, the resolution was accepted by the leading elements in the Zionist movement and was rejected by most Palestinians and by all the Arab states with the sole exception of Jordan. Palestinian and Arab disunity then contributed to the crushing defeat suffered first by the Palestinians themselves in the months leading up to the British evacuation of May 15, 1948, and subsequently to the resounding defeat of the four Arab armies, the armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq, that entered Palestine after the British withdrawal. Long before the British left, long before May 15th, as many as 300,000 Palestinians had already been driven from their homes. In other words, the exodus began long before the state of Israel was actually established and long before the mandate actually technically ended. Some left because of things like unceasing mortar bombardments of urban areas. Others fled as news spread of massacres like Deir Yassin in April 1948. The city of Jaffa was overrun by Zionist forces and was emptied by most of its Arab population of about 60,000 in late April 1948. Those who were driven out before the mandate ended and before the State of Israel was formally established included most of the Arab residents of two of the three cities with the largest Arab populations, that is to say Jaffa, Haifa, and much of the Arab population of West Jerusalem. Palestinian society was thus effectively decapitated, most of its urban population forced to flee before May 15, 1948. After that date, after the establishment of Israel, in the wake of further massacres and the defeat of the Arab armies, another 400,000 or so Palestinians were expelled. Uh, several more cities were ethnically cleansed, as were 400 villages. 
and 78% of Palestine was forcibly transformed into the new state of Israel, which expanded from the partition boundaries. The destruction of most of their society has since been known by the Palestinians as a Nakba, the disaster. Now, I'm arguing here that the partition resolution was a reiteration and updating by new powers of the 1917 declaration of war on the Palestinians, obviously in a different form and obviously with different sponsors. After World War II, colonialism had become a bad word. You didn't hear reference to colonization or Zionist colonization, which people had no embarrassment in talking about before World War II. National liberation was in the air, and the Zionist project was repackaged as self-determination for the national movement of a people that had been cruelly oppressed in Europe. This was an incontrovertible argument in the immediate aftermath of the revelation of the horrors of the Holocaust. This time, however, the patrons of Zionism were the US and USSR rather than Britain. And once again, there was international cover for this action, UN cover rather than League of Nations cover. The only true concern of the superpowers that engineered the partition resolution was to complete Herzl's colonial project and create the state of Israel. Even though the creation of an Arab state is mentioned in this resolution, everything beyond the establishment of Israel was window dressing for them. The quick strangulation of the Arab state in its cradle through the well-documented collusion of Israel, Jordan, and Britain was met with indifference by the powers that had supposedly mandated the creation of an Arab state. They didn't care about that. That's not what they were interested in. They were interested in the Jewish state mentioned in the partition resolution. Now, in this phase, the actual acts of war against the Palestinians were carried out before May 15th by Zionist militias, and after that date by the newly established Army of the State of Israel, with arms supplied mainly by the two superpowers. And this is important. This marked a major shift from the previous phase when most warfare against the Palestinians had been carried out by the British. So that's the first of these two new declarations of war. The other superpower mandated pronouncement amounting to a declaration of war on the Palestinians was UN Security Council Resolution 242 of November 1967, following the June war of that year. This resolution was supposedly meant to produce peace between the Arab states and Israel in return for evacuation of territory that Israel had occupied during the war. As some of you may have noticed, uh, to this day that resolution has not actually produced peace, but that's what it was supposed to do. Instead, as far as the Palestinians were concerned, 242 consecrated the results of the 1948 war, both in terms of Israel's expulsion of Palestinians and its territorial aggrandizement up to 1949. The resolution never mentioned any of the basic political issues raised by the 48 war or that had been earlier mandated by UN resolutions such as refugee return and compensation or Israel giving up the gains of the 1948 war and returning to the lines laid down by the partition plan. Instead, 242 referred only to a just settlement of the refugee problem. There was no specification of what this vague proviso meant, nor did it have any explicit political content. Resolution 242 thereby helped to further efface the Palestinians from their own country and from history. The green light which US President Lyndon Johnson gave to Israel for its attack 
1967 represented a turning point from the much more limited levels of US support that had previously been offered to Israel by earlier American presidents. Indeed, between 1948 and 67, Israel's main great power patrons were France and Great Britain. And it was mainly with French and British arms that Israel fought the 56 and 67 wars. Thereafter, the June 67 war marked the beginning of a full-scale US-Israeli alliance, which was forged in the circumstances of the Cold War, when Israel first came to be seen as a faithful ally against the Soviet Union's Arab proxies. As we all know, this alliance is still in existence a quarter of a century after the end of the Cold War. Now, as I've suggested, 242, in fact, represented yet another declaration of war on the Palestinians, this time by the superpowers and their allies. Like the Balfour Declaration, 242, which has become the universally accepted basis for a resolution of the entire conflict, does not even mention the Palestinians as a people or as a party to the conflict. This is true, although they have always represented the core of the problem in Palestine, going back to their displacement in 1948 in order to create a Jewish majority state in a country with a large Arab majority. By shunting the Palestinians aside with the wording a just settlement of the refugee problem, 242 treats the entire issue as one between the Arab states and Israel. It doesn't have a Palestinian component, 242. Like the Balfour Declaration, it completely ignores the ongoing colonial process in Palestine, in effect sanctifying it, a process that was exacerbated by Israel's occupation of the remaining parts of the country. 242 thus constitutes what I would argue is another great power act of Kimmerling's term politicide. Now, after the crushing defeats of the Palestinians in the 30s and then the 40s, it may have seemed as if the Palestinian people had disappeared. Looking at the Middle East in the 1950s, their traditional leadership under the discredited Mufti of Jerusalem had been shattered and dispersed. More than half of the Palestinian Arab population had become refugees, and most of the country had been absorbed into Israel. Uh, with Jordan and Egypt in control of smaller parts. The Palestinians seemed to have no voice, no central address, and no champions. Partisans of the Zionist takeover of Palestine and of the replacement of the country's indigenous inhabitants with a Jewish settler population had long fervently hoped for such an outcome. In 1969, Golda Meir told the Sunday Times of London categorically there were no such things as Palestinians. Israel's prime minister thereby took the negationism that is characteristic of every colonial project to the highest possible level. For Meyer, the Palestinians not only did not exist, they never had existed. Even as she spoke, however, events were proving that the Palestinians were still in existence. For after a hiatus that lasted for a decade after 1948, young middle-class Palestinian professionals inside and outside their homeland resuscitated their shattered national movement on a very different basis than the one that had characterized the elite-dominated Palestinian politics of the period before 1948. The 1967 war gave an enormous boost to these radical new groups, which openly advocated and practiced what they called armed struggle against Israel. People all over the Arab world were galvanized by the reemergence of the Palestinian national movement, represented by the rise of these armed groups like Fatah, the Popular Front, and so forth, which later coalesced into the PFLP. This rebirth of their national movement in a new form constituted another episode of resistance by the Palestinians to the long war against them. 
It was a reaffirmation that the Palestinians existed in the face of constant denial. This denial was evidenced not only by statements like those of Golder Meir, but by the demolition after 1948 of over 400 Palestinian villages whose populations had been ethnically cleansed. As grave as these Israeli actions, and I'm trying to stress this, as grave as these actions, the destruction of the villages, the refusal of permission for them to their populations to return, as grave as these actions was the considered decision of the United States of the Soviet Union, of the other great powers, as expressed through Security Council Resolution 242, to ignore the Palestinians entirely. Not invited to peace conferences, not mentioned in international resolutions. They don't exist in practice. It was not only, therefore, against their dispossession, but against all of these denials and slights that the newly galvanized Palestinians reacted in the 60s and 70s. They did so by violently asserting their existence with a series of spectacular attacks inside Israel and abroad. The response in the United States and Israel and parts of Europe to these Palestinian attacks was, of course, intensely negative. It stigmatized the Palestinians as terrorists. By this stage, at least in the mind of America, Israel had erased its colonial past and was instead seen in terms of positive images drawn from the kinds of sources I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture. Paradoxically, this period, when the Palestinians were being demonized in some quarters, was also marked by their success in internationalizing their struggle beyond the confines of the Arab world. In other words, at a time when people in, in the United States were thinking of the Palestinians intensely negatively, in other parts of the world, people began to think of them more positively. The PLO was recognized as sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. It garnered worldwide recognition. Yes, Arafat spoke before the UN General Assembly. The PLO opened missions in over 100 countries and so forth. This was the greatest international victory in Palestinian history, this international recognition, after so many years of non-recognition. However, the main response to the PLO's armed violence and to the organization's growing international profile was a ratcheting up of the war on the Palestinians. Although Israel took the lead in this war, launching attacks on Palestinian bases and refugee camps in Jordan and Lebanon from 1967 onwards, many other actors were also involved. And I want to stress this. Some of these actors were drawn into fighting the Palestinian resistance movement by unceasing Israeli military pressure, whose clear message was that if Arab host countries would not take on the PLO, Israel would continue to devastate their country. One of the first of these demonstration raids was the Israeli attack on Beirut airport in 1968. It wasn't an attack on Palestinian camps. It wasn't an attack on Palestinians. It was an attack on Middle East Airlines and the Beirut airport. A crucial early front in this war was in Jordan, where during what the Palestinians called Black September, Jordanian troops in 1970 crushed the PLO in Amman and other cities. Jordan was strongly backed by the United States in this effort. You can read it in Kissinger's memoirs, and you can read in the archival sources that are now available how extensive and how serious this support was. A few months later, in spring of 1971, Jordan completely expelled PLO groups from its territory. A third front in this war on the Palestinians after 1967 was initiated by a series of Israeli attacks on Lebanon and on the Palestinian presence there. This pressure, subtly supported by the United States, eventually produced offensives against Palestinian refugee camps and PLO bases by a variety of actors. The first of these attacks was launched by the Lebanese army in May of 1973, followed by right-wing Lebanese militia groups in 
April of 1975, and by the Syrian army in the summer of 1976, and concluded with major invasions of Lebanon by the Israeli army in 1978, Operation Litani, and 1982. In all of this, the United States was far more than a mere onlooker. It was a broker. It was a supporter. It was a cheerleader. We have documents on much of this. American policymakers actively supported these new phases of the war on the Palestinians, often with arms and other forms of assistance, but always acting through proxies. No American soldiers were involved. Other powers were also engaged against the Palestinians at different times during this period. For example, the Soviet Union supported the 1976 Syrian offensive against the PLO, the Shah's Iran, Saudi Arabia, France, and Jordan all supplied Lebanese militia groups like the Falange and the Lebanese forces during the Civil War. While the great powers set the international framework for the war on the Palestinians, and there were Jordanian, Lebanese, Syrian, and other Arab combatants in different phases of the war, really from 1947 onward, the brunt of the fighting was done first by the Zionist movement and later by the State of Israel. In all of Israel's military operations, without exception, the backing of external powers was as vital to its success as had been the might of Great Britain before World War II to the success of Zionism. In Israel's victory of 1948, for example, the diplomatic support of the United States and the Soviet Union were as indispensable as the weapons both superpowers supplied. Britain and French arms played a similar key role in the 56 and 67 wars. Israel could not have fought or won any of those wars without those weapons. Weapons are not sold simply to make a profit. They are sold as a political token of the outcome that a weapons-producing power wants to see. Uh, similarly, Israel's unbroken string of military victories over both the Arab armies and the Palestinians since 1967 was entirely dependent on the almost unlimited provision of advanced American weapons systems. Let me now talk about the two last phases of this campaign against the Palestinians. One of them took an ostensibly peaceful and democratic form, starting with the Camp David Accords of 1978. I have no time to go into this. I can go into it in questions. The key events in this peaceful phase were the bilateral 1991 to 93 Palestinian-Israeli Madrid negotiations and Washington negotiations, followed by secret negotiations in Oslo and elsewhere. Billed as an attempt to peacefully resolve the conflict, the objective of both Israel and the United States was in fact to manage the conflict while allowing the extension into the indefinite future of key aspects of a status quo of occupation and colonization. That is what Israel aimed to achieve. That is what the United States allowed it to do. That is what happened. Peace was not the outcome, as you may have noticed. In Washington, Oslo, and subsequent talks, the Palestinians, it turns out, were not, in fact, negotiating with Israel through a neutral American intermediary, but were actually up against two opponents, Israel and its close ally, the United States. The opponents the Palestinians faced included, in fact, not only Israel and its American patron, but also the autocratic Arab Gulf regimes, whose feebleness vis-a-vis -vis domestic and external threats and their dependence on the United States ensured that they remained pliable and reliable American clients who could be counted on to put pressure on the PLO. I was involved as an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Washington negotiations, and at one sticky point, Dennis Ross said to us, 
you know, if you guys don't back down on this, we're going to get our Arab friends in the Gulf to put some pressure on you. He actually said it. This was not a secret. The Palestinians had a lot of people across the table from them, not just Yakim Rubinstein and an Israeli delegation. The problems of the Palestinians included as well the incompetence, the lack of legal knowledge, and the ignorance of conditions inside occupied Palestine of the PLO leadership in Tunis, which in fact endorsed and was responsible for the 1993 Oslo Accords. These officials accepted terms at Oslo and in subsequent negotiations that had earlier been rejected in Washington by the Palestinian delegation from the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. In fact, West Bank and Gazan leaders proved more realistic than the PLO leadership in Tunis about the Americans and about Israel. In consequence of all of these factors, and most importantly because of American-Israeli collusion and the failures of the PLO leadership, the regime that emerged from the 1993 Oslo Accords had the effect of denying Palestinian self-determination while allowing the expansion of colonial settlement and occupation. The occupation is far more entrenched today than when we went to Madrid in 1991. Settlements have expanded. The proof of this is that we are going to go into the 50th year of that occupation in June of this year. The proof of this is the growth in the number of Israelis living illegally in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem. When we went to Madrid in 1991, there were 200,000 of them. Between East Jerusalem and the West Bank, there are close to 600,000 of them today. The settler population has tripled during the so-called peace process. This peace process, in effect, constituted another phase in the American-Israeli campaign against the Palestinians. Its primary aim, continuing to this day, is to bring the Palestinians to accept their defeat in the long war that has been waged against them since 1917. I could talk about another international declaration of war on the Palestinians over the past decade. And this would have to do with uh, refusal by the United States and the EU to deal with the entirety of the Palestinian national movement, including Hamas. I could explain the reasons for it to you. But the main reason I'm going to skip over is to, in my view at least, is to split and weaken the Palestinian national movement in keeping with a classic colonial policy of divide and rule, whereby the Palestinians have been physically divided into those in the West Bank, those in Gaza, those inside Israel, those in East Jerusalem, and those outside of Palestine. The actual acts of war in this last phase have been carried out mainly by Israel, but it was fully supported in this by the United States, by the EU, and by several Arab governments, notably the government of Egypt. These included the siege and blockade of the Gaza Strip, periodic massive attacks on Gaza, all of them with the usual horrendously lopsided casualty figures. This suppression of the Palestinians has taken place with the collusion and collaboration of the Ramallah-based Palestinian Authority that was created by the Oslo Accords and that was mistakenly thought by some Palestinians to be the first step towards an independent state. In fact, it was nothing of the sort. It was always essentially intended by Israel to protect the security of its occupation and colonization enterprise. The PA is a body which has no sovereignty, no jurisdiction, and no authority except that which is allowed it by Israel. Even today, the PA continues its close security cooperation with the Army of Occupation and with the Israeli intelligence services. This is the argument that I've tried to lay out this evening. You can see from what I've tried to put before you 
What has been going on in Palestine for a century has been completely mischaracterized. I think this long war on the Palestinians should be seen in comparative perspective as one of the last major colonial conflicts of the modern era, and as the last one devoted to the establishment of a colonial settler state in the non-European world. In this endeavor, the United States and Europe in effect serve as the metropole with their extension Israel operating as a semi-independent settler colony. None of this is any less true because over time, this war has evolved into a national struggle between the indigenous Palestinian people and the Israeli Jewish nation state that has grown up and thrived in Palestine. However, the deceptive way in which this conflict is often depicted as a tragic struggle over the same territory between two peoples with equally valid competing claims has in fact served to obscure its essentially colonial nature. It in fact can be both things, a struggle between two peoples and a colonial settler war. The veiling of this basic reality also elides the fact that like any colonial entity, Israel could never have been successful without the indispensable support of external powers, whether the old colonial powers of Europe or the United States and the USSR. In conclusion, notwithstanding the great strength of the international and regional actors that have been waging this century-long war on the Palestinians through proxies, I would argue that they have been trying to do the impossible. They have been trying to impose a colonial reality in Palestine in a post-colonial age. This was as true of Balfour and Lloyd George, of Truman and Johnson, and as it was of Clinton, Bush, and Obama, who've all extended full backing to Israel at different times. Were the Palestinians as few compared to their colonizers as were the native peoples of Australasia and the Americas, and were we in the 18th or 19th century, there might have been a chance of successfully implanting a colonial settler society in place of the indigenous one. But in the words of the late Tony Judd, Zionism has, quote, imported a characteristically late 19th century separatist project into a world that has moved on. It has done this by exporting this colonial Euro-American project to a non-European locale, one with a large existing population. In view of the persistent stubborn resistance of the Palestinians to their displacement and to their erasure from history, such a project simply cannot succeed in the 21st century. It cannot succeed even though the basic colonial nature of this encounter has been veiled from most Americans and some Europeans. I will leave you with two questions tonight. In light of this history, how can the true colonial nature of the ongoing struggle in Palestine be made clear? And all of these, these distractions be swept aside. And secondly, how can these two peoples, the Palestinians and the Israelis, transit to a peaceful post-colonial, post-Zionist future in which one of them does not use constant violence and massive external support to oppress and try to supplant the other, and in which the Palestinian people finally achieve the self-determination that has been so long denied them. Thank you very much. You heard Columbia University historian Professor Rashid Khalidi speaking about the Balfour Declaration 
and the role of the world's superpowers in supporting and cementing Israel's settler colonialist project. Professor Khaledi gave the keynote speech titled The Hundred Year War at the Center for Palestine Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at University of London in 2016. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.